Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour or so. Coming up on today's show, as hostilities in Israel and Gaza intensify, we're going to examine the origins of those hostilities and look at the geopolitical interests of everyone involved in this escalating crisis. And then back home, we're going to look at the revenue robocop taxman who's about to get tough on debtors. So says John Isle from the Sunday Times. He'll be here to tell us about the new crackdown on Irish business. And this week we learned of the sad passing of Chuck Feeney. We're going to examine the life and generosity of the billionaire who gave away a fortune, much of it here in Ireland. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Well, first up today, we're going to look at a story about a cutting edge revenue collection system, which is poised to have a significant impact on the business landscape here in Ireland. So says John Isle of The Sunday Times. John, I'm looking at a story that you've written about this that says COVID tax debtors to face face cash sweep. So maybe just take us back a little bit uh, to how this all started um, and just explain to me and the listeners what this new revenue collection system actually is. Well, there's two aspects to the to the story I did. There's one, uh, the system that's operating in the background, the so-called debt management services system, which is really a powerful software-enabled collections platform that allows revenue to monitor and communicate with all of Ireland's uh, 1.4 million registered businesses. And one of the things it's going to be used for next year is the collection of the nearly 2 billion euros in warehoused COVID debts. Now, these are debts that were set aside by revenue. They weren't collected during the COVID emergency to help businesses that were affected by lockdowns and other disruptions that were happening in the economy at the time. Mm. They were essentially let off their tax bills uh, for a period of nearly three years, in fact. But now those bills are coming due. And one of the ways that revenue is going to begin collecting them is by doing an automatic sweep of the smaller ones. This is bills that are below 1,000, but possibly up to as much as 5,000. And they're going to be automatically deducted uh, from any returns that businesses are going to get, let's say on VAT overpayments or I don't know, you know, sort of income tax overpayments or PRSI that they do on behalf of employees. The revenue is just gonna see that automatically and the computer is gonna act and take that money uh, into collections without there ever being a human interaction. Mm. So, so John, this was effectively ready to happen in 2019 and then along came the pandemic. And with the pandemic uh, came payments and uh, as you say, warehousing of debts. But why did that happen? You tell a very you know, compelling story about someone who's trying to get through what you call the alphabet soup of the legacy of those payments. So maybe just talk us through the type of payments that that businesses were grappling with and trying to deal with. Sure. If you go back to 2019, when everything was normal in the economy, so to speak, um, revenue was implementing this new system. And the idea was to release their human resources for more high-value tasks. So Mm -hmm. the machine would kind of hum in the background, dealing with tax filings, returns, collections, all of that kind of stuff that really can kind of happen on a purely numerical basis. Um, And actually, the the system had been implemented in 2019. And if you look at the statistics for, say, referrals to the sheriffs, that is debts that go unpaid and they have to go to a kind of collector agent, those ramped up. They went went up by about two times uh, in, in 2019. But then, of course... 
uh, COVID came in, mm. in March 2020, and that fell off a cliff. Revenue essentially turned the machine off and said, we're going back to the old way of doing things because businesses are suffering. So they had they had loads of issues. If you, if you cast your mind back, at first um, you had the wage subsidy scheme, which was essentially instead of collecting money, revenue was sending money back to businesses. And, and this, was a, this was a scheme that was... <clears throat> you know, meant to help businesses keep um, keep employment up, keep people on staff, et cetera, through lockdowns when they weren't necessarily working at the rate they would have before. Then there were other schemes like the CRIS scheme, which was uh, the COVID restriction subsidy scheme. There was the EWIS, the employment wage subsidy scheme. You know, there were all of these kinds of things. And then you could also park your tax debts at no interest. The money that you owed revenue on things like VAT or things like PRSI, you could put it in this warehouse. Now, what I meant in the story by the alphabet soup was all of those schemes and their letters, but that created a, actually a big burden for accountants, you know, mm. in addition to doing the kind of normal uh, tax preparation for their clients, had to navigate all of these different applications and uh, proposals and so forth to, to become eligible for the schemes. And one of the ones that, that actually became notorious among uh, accountants and tax practitioners was the TBES, the Temporary Business Energy uh, support scheme, which was introduced uh, in last year's budget, in fact. And the idea was that you'd give companies a break on their energy bills, which, as we all know, skyrocketed last year because of the war in Ukraine. But it had something like a 120-page guidebook to how to apply for it and was such a headache that about half the businesses that tried to register for it abandoned the application process halfway through. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of... Um, Let's call it. There's a there's a lot of leftovers from COVID and and the energy crisis of last year, and and the tax system really isn't quite back to normal yet uh, as a result of that. And there's still kind of a mountain of work to get through, but revenue has this very powerful computer which is expected to help them do it. Getting ready to to kick in. Yeah, you mentioned that energy credit there. I expect I suspect that that energy credit actually used more energy in trying to download the forms and complete them than it did in actually providing assistance. But you mentioned the debt there, John, and that's an important part of this, isn't it? As you say, there was a lot of confusion, but also I suppose revenue and finance and all them taking a kind of a um, an easier attitude towards all that because look businesses were trying to get through and get get staff through but the legacy of all that was a lot of this debt as you say was warehoused how much was involved in this do you know are there figures for the amount of businesses and, and, and how much actual debt was was warehoused as a result of all that well, there was a huge amount that was eligible mm. for the warehouse that was never put in. Most businesses, in fact, continued paying their taxes or paying most of their taxes. But at its peak, I think there was about $3.2 billion that was kind of salted away there and, and just wasn't wasn't collected. Now, some of that's been chipped away over the years, and we're left with about $1.9 billion now. And that's been it's been kind of stuck there for most of the year, which, which tells me, uh, you know, and tells a lot of tax practitioners that this is kind of the hardcore bit of debt that maybe isn't going to be paid back, let's say. Mm. You know, it's the, it's the stuff where businesses haven't quite recovered yet from COVID, and, and a lot of these are businesses in the hospitality sector, um, you know, that were hit especially hard, or even in the construction sector. You know, there was the liquidation recently of Mac Interiors, which is an office fit-out company. They went out of business with about $13 million in COVID debts that they still owed to revenue. Now, if you break down that $1.9 billion, it's actually very interesting because the bulk of the tax debtors in the system owe small amounts. They owe less than 5,000. About nine out of 10 businesses that are in the scheme 
owe 5000 or less, they will probably be able to pay that back, right? Mm. It's not a huge amount of money. Now, I don't want to minimize it either because, you know, five grand in cash flow to a small business can be significant, but it's not the kind of, it's not the amount that's going to necessarily put someone out of business. But that one in 10 group, they owe huge amounts. And right. in fact, the bulk of the COVID debts, 1.6 billion of the 1.9 billion, are owed by 10% of the firms. And that works out to an average of about 275 grand per firm. And some of them have huge debts in the millions, in fact. And those are the ones that revenue is very concerned about. And a lot of accountants are concerned about. I talked to um, Neil Hughes, who's the the um, managing partner of Azet's Ireland, a very big accounting firm. And he says he expects to see insolvencies double in the second quarter of next year, due exclusively to the collections on uh, warehouse debts that, wow. that revenue is going to undertake, that some businesses just won't have the money to pay them. Yeah. Okay, so let's separate out those two groups. First of all, the the 5K, and, and I get exactly what you're saying. For some, they will pay it back. For others, it will be a huge burden. The thing that actually might cause of a lot of problem is this automatically taking the money um, that's not going to go down well uh, it's very difficult to explain are the revenue commissioners you know eking up some kind of communications to, to prepare people for this I also think in the context of a local election this this type of of activity is going to be could be could end up being quite politically tricky well, absolutely, especially in the context of some of the changes that small businesses are having to cope with um, as Already. a result of the, the rising cost of living, the inflation, and then even some extra cost burdens that have come through. The, the minimum wage has gone up in the last budget. That's very good for workers, but it's a huge expense for small businesses. Uh, PRSI has inched up a little bit. Um, you know, the VAT has gone gone from, for hospitality businesses, has gone from 9 back to 13.5%. Those are all things that are eating into margins right now, and it's making it difficult to set cash aside for, you know, future tax bills. And so, you know, if, if for instance, you were expecting next May, let's say you overpaid your VAT and you were due to get three grand back, but you owe revenue 2,500. They're just going to take know, that. They're just going to take it. Yeah. And uh, the money you might have been counting on, I don't know, to fix a refrigerator or to, um, you know, get a new oven for your cafe or something like yeah. that, just isn't going to be there. So, you know, there could be a knock-on effect in terms of business investment, uh, maybe a knock-on effect in terms of employment or in terms of wages. Uh, we just don't know yet. Um, but in terms of the the other group, the ones with the very big debts, those could be some of the more spectacular failures that you know you'll you'll hear about in the media, but the sort of death by a thousand cuts happens a lot more quietly, I think, in in the smaller corners of the SME world. Mm. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking with John Isle from the Sunday Times about a new debt management service system uh, for small businesses and large businesses that that is going to kick in next year. Uh, by the revenue commissioners, John. Um, just those those ten percent that you sp- spoke about, um, and their larger figures, two hundred and seventy thousand upwards. Is there any kind of profile of those? Is there in a particular area? You mentioned there was a lot of people in the hospitality area, maybe for some of the smaller ones. But mm-hmm. is is there any particular sector that that is 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 affected by this, or is it just across the board? 
Yeah, well, construction was another one that was, that featured very heavily in the tax debt warehouse. Um, you know, now they're like uh, I should say that all sectors are represented mm. in, in terms of tax debts, but the larger percentages or the disproportionate percentages would be in the hospitality again, and then construction. And some of those larger ones would be in construction, as we saw with the um, interiors in in recent weeks. And the issue there, of course, was you know builders were off site. And there was nothing they could do. You can't remote work mm. uh, a construction site. You can't do work from home and fit out an office building. That has to be done on site or it's not done at all. So there were massive cash flow issues in that sector. And um, the bill, so to speak, is you know is coming due. Now, revenue, uh, to give them credit, are not looking to put anybody out of business. You know, they're very clear about that, that they will work with any taxpayer that engages with them. They're talking about repayment terms of up to five years in some cases, um, with the debts rolling over at a pretty low interest rate of just 3%, which is cheaper than any bank finance you can get at the moment. So I suspect a lot of businesses that have allowed their debts to just sit in this warehouse are kind of looking at the financing alternatives in the market at the moment and saying, well, if I can do this at 3% with revenue, why would I go to my bank for six, seven, eight percent for the same money just to pay off that debt and then have a kind of a larger uh, you know term loan <clears throat> to pay off instead of just dealing with revenue straight up? So what revenue is going to be doing now, starting in the fourth quarter of this year, is going to issue lots of communications to anybody who owes money, asking them to either pay it off up front so that they don't have to sweep it up next May, or to set up what they call a phased payment arrangement. And to do that, you just have to pay any part of the principal. You can even pay a tenor towards mm. your principal. And then you set up a, a payment arrangement, which basically says, this is how much I will pay every month or every quarter <clears throat> for the following term until the whole debt is paid off. Now, some accountants are saying five years isn't enough for businesses that are heavily indebted. They'll need longer-term refinancing or even restructuring of the debts where part of them may have to get written off. Now, revenue isn't normally inclined to write off tax debts, so I think that might be a, a tough hill to climb for them. Um, but, you know, the idea that you'll have five years to get through to pay off these debts that you accumulated over the two or three-year COVID period is maybe a bit of comfort for businesses that are, say, looking at a few hundred grand that they're expecting to pay off. They won't have to do that in May of 2024. Mm. They, but, but on the other hand, that's also business investment that isn't going to happen for the next half a decade while these guys are paying off their debts from COVID. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Could all have an impact down the line. You've spoken to somebody from Revenue Commissioners about this. What's their attitude towards kind of helping business along? Well, God, I, I spoke to Joe Howley, who is the um, Revenue Collector General. He's one of the sort of top four people um, in revenue. And, you know, he was very blunt about what's going on. Uh, he said something very interesting, um, you know, which is that uh, he said customers need uh, what he calls behavioral training back to <laughs> compliance. I saw that. After, yeah. Yes, after the COVID period. So he said, we suspended collection and enforcement action then, but a little bit of complacency set in during that vacuum. And he says his priority, and in fairness, it is his job, is to recover that slippage in timely compliance. Um, so he, I mean, he's not messing around. Mm. It's clear that the message going out right now to the business community is really that revenue is going to be on top of non-compliance very quickly and that business needs to take demands from revenue seriously, that the COVID period where they had a very easy kind of hands-off approach is well and truly over. Um, 
as well. You know, the, the public <laughs> health emergency is over and the relaxed uh, revenue is is no longer in town. It's, yeah. it, the sheriff is back. I love that line um, about retraining business back to compliance. So not only is RoboCop going to take the money, it's going to retrain us all. Uh, John, before I let you go, I just want a quick word with you um, about Budget 2024. You're going to be writing about it this weekend, uh, no doubt. What's your view on the business element of it? Did it do enough? Well, for businesses who maybe became accustomed to getting a lot of government support during COVID and over the last year because of the war in Ukraine, I think it was probably a pretty disappointing budget. In fact, there's a lot more money that's going to be going out now in terms of taxes and in terms of wages than is coming the other way. Now, Simon Coveney did announce this sort of $250 million business package where there's a kind of a rebate on commercial rates for businesses that are paying a lot in commercial rates. But when you break it down across the entire business universe, I think it works out to about two grand per registered business in Ireland. So really not a whole Mm. lot. And for anybody who's worried about volatile energy bills, higher wage costs, higher input costs, you know, inflation is still around, there's probably not a lot of comfort in the budget for them. But for other sectors like high-tech High-tech sectors, um, you know, like software, biotech, etc., there was a little bit in the budget for them. And one thing we are writing about this week is the new incentive for angel investors um, to put their money into high-risk but, but high-potential startups. Now, previously, when, when, if you put your money as an angel investor into a long-shot startup company, um, you would have to pay capital gains tax at the normal rate if you, st- if you struck it big and mm-hmm. got a big return. But now what has happened is uh, the Minister for Finance has cut that in half, and now you'll only be paying 16% capital gains instead of 33%. And there's a few conditions attached to it, but but by and large, you're looking at, if you do it to the maximum of 3 million euros in return, you're looking at getting basically an extra 500,000. Wow, yeah. Which is well, a pretty hefty incentive. That's a pretty hefty incentive, all right. Well, look, you can read all about it in this week's edition of the Sunday Times. And John, thank you very much for taking the time for being with us today. That was John Isle of the Sunday Times. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up after the break, it was a life well lived. We'll be talking about the incredible life and times of Chuck Feeney. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, as I said at the top of the programme, we heard the sad news this week of the sad passing of Chuck Feeney at the ripe old age of 92. Well, his fame stems obviously from his philanthropic work all over the world, which saw him give away a huge amount of money, $8 billion to charitable causes throughout the world, including much of it here in Ireland, in particular to many Irish universities. I'm delighted to be joined now by Ted Smith, who is chair of the Clinton Institute for American Studies at UCD and a former Irish diplomat to celebrate and talk about the life of Chuck Feeney. Ted, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Now, he he famously um, told, apparently, Warren Buffett once that he wanted to pass with his last cheque bouncing. And we're going to get into all that in a moment. But can you just take us right back to the start? Where was Chuck Feeney born and who were his family? He was born in New Jersey in a working class district in the 30s. And um, his mother was a nurse and his father worked in insurance. And, um, you know, they, they grew up pretty poor people were coming out of the depression and um, he uh, was a very bright kid 
went to a local school and then got a scholarship to Regis High School, a uh, very prestigious high school, Catholic high school in, in Manhattan, and went there for a year and hated it because he missed all his friends back in uh, in New Jersey. And, and so he, he went back to uh, St. Mary's, the school he loved, and um, <clears throat> grew up, had a happy childhood with his friends there, a uh, very bright kid, very funny, very amusing, and then got a scholarship to Cornell, where he studied hotel management. Mm. So this was a guy who stood out from the very beginning, but was a very uh, friendly, warm, happy individual. And his family, his parents, they came from, he had an Irish connection there, obviously. Yeah, his gran- his grandmother came from County Fermanagh, and um, that didn't impinge on him much at first. You know, you grew up Irish and Catholic, and Italian families, and they all lived, uh, <clears throat> they assumed that's what it was like. But he had, you know, they weren't really much in touch with Ireland. And as he got older, he became much more involved with Ireland. <clears throat> and that meant a lot more to him. And that's frequently uh, something we see with the Irish-American community. Um, they, they they care more about their roots as they, as they get older and look to their Irish heritage. And of course, he became deeply involved later on. But, you know, the first part of the story is extraordinarily innovative way in which he made his money. Mm. Yeah, and we often see that, as you say, Ted, with political leaders in America who are the second generation of Irish immigrants. They they find that connection and, and, and they bring themselves back here to, to the homeland, as it were. But you mentioned there that he was incredibly bright and he won himself a scholarship and that led him into business. So where did he actually start making his money? What was his first entry point into the world of business? <laughs> When he was in Cornell uh, getting his degree, he would sell sandwiches to the frat houses. You know, they would all be off getting drunk and he'd be making sandwiches and going around selling them. So that was the sort of entrepreneur he was. And even younger, he was always looking to make, uh, find some way to make money and he'd bring his pals into it as well. And then he went off and joined up. There was still a draft, but he joined up uh, and became a radio operator in, uh, in Japan, in Asia. And the Korean War broke out, and he wasn't posted there, but he remained a very important radio operator. But while he was there, he realized that there were opportunities um, that you know people wanted. So he began uh, as he, when he was demobbed and left the army, he began to sell <coughs> duty-free liquor to the troops. And um, there were so many stations in Japan and uh, around Asia, and he came, uh, you know, very comfortable in those in that community and uh, had a great, fantastic network, including of his old Cornell uh, buddies who had graduated. And um, first we got selling cars. Uh, uh, sorry, selling liquor. Then they said, well, let's sell cars. They're duty-free for uh, troops. So when they come back home, they'll have a, a much cheaper uh, car, a uh, foreign car, European car. And that became an extraordinary business. And in all of this, he kept his, use a business term, overhead down, uh, very low cost, didn't have an inventory, just had catalogs, and then would arrange for the dealer to send the cars back, and they would take a certain percentage. So he was um, very quick-witted and um, understudied as a businessman, and quite disarming, great at making friends in the army and in the, you know, where, where people could give them access to, uh, to customers particularly to Americans. So mm. um, 
very fast, very quick, and uh, quite unorthodox in, that, in the way that it could see opportunities where nobody else could see them. And you mentioned duty-free shopping um, and the concessions that he, he brought to the products. Um, was that the first iteration of that or was that in common practice in lots of places? Did he see a gap in the market and expand that? Oh, he did. He definitely saw it. it wasn't just a gap in the market. He saw where the market would go. Mm. Um, you know, Hawaii was missing huts. People were landing in and he got in when they were developing the airport in Hawaii, the terminal and got the concession for the duty-free, um, which uh, he paid a lot of money. It was a big bet, typical of Chuck, that he would always make big bets, but it was well-grounded. He realized that tourism was going to become enormous, and uh, he had his eye on, on these tourists as they would, Americans would come through, and later on the Japanese. Mm. Uh, Hong Kong was another one, or Nissan Huts. Uh, and they were developing an airport. So he got in there very early. And did that all grow into the duty-free as we would come to know it passing through the airports on our summer holidays? Yes, yeah. He he, he saw nobody else was really doing it. There were a few bits and pieces. Mm. But he realised that uh, if you could get the legislation supporting it, that if you bought stuff abroad and bought it back, it would be duty-free for a certain amount of items. Uh, he did it on the Canadian border. Um, the New York authorities got very annoyed because New Yorkers would go across the border, buy a lot of uh, stuff and bring it back duty-free. But he it stood up in court. So he then you know, developed it around the world and expanded enormously uh, with, his, with his key partners. And, and Ted, at, at the height of his, um, of his business um, uh, success, how wealthy did he become? You know, he became, when he founded Atlantic Philanthropies, uh, in 82, and then in 1987, he transferred uh, half of duty-free shoppers, about 30, 40%, across to uh, the charity. That was then worth um, about uh, $500 million. And uh, he grew that into $8 billion By And this is another wrinkle that people miss out. He had the foundation uh, invest in companies like Facebook, E-Trade, mm. Alibaba, that nobody was betting on. Uh, he just had this enormous eye for the coming thing. Uh, he could read up people. He could read up situations. Uh, he was very culturally aware of global movements, uh, which is very unusual for a person, you know, from the 30s. Mm. And he kept uh, up to date with trends and so forth. And to get in early on Facebook and to grow quite a small investment, half a billion uh, to eight billion, um, was uh, a tremendous uh, you know, achievement for a business person. Indeed, indeed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking with Ted Smith, the former diplomat and current chair of the Clinton Institute for American Studies at UCD. And we're speaking about the life and very generous times of uh, Chuck Feeney, who passed away this week. Ted, this brings us neatly along to the other side of his life, which is philanthropy and altruism. And you know, a great role model for Chuck Finney was Andrew Carnegie, who famously once said that he who dies rich dies in disgrace. And that was something that was to become a defining part of his life, even after he became successful in business, wasn't it? Yes, he was as innovative in giving away money, investing it, as he called it, in good causes as he was in making it, which again is very unusual. I think there are very few of the uh, things, initiatives he supported with his $8 billion that have his name on them. 
unlike most other uh, philanthropists. You know, in an era of bullying billionaires, he stands out as somebody who wasn't telling people what to do. He always famously said, I want to show you the opportunity. Mm. And this was, uh, this was his way. And he, you know, he, as we know now, he, he supported, uh, you know, basically equality in society, uh, better health care for all, and uh, specifically, you know, his causes were, of course, Ireland, uh, where he became increasingly involved. He gave away half a billion to the north, half a billion to the south. But in 1987, after the IRA bombing of Ennis Killing, he was deeply affected and deeply influenced by Senator Gordon Wilson mm. and began to get involved at that stage in um, seeing how he could promote reconciliation in Northern Ireland and uh, started supporting integrated education. And um, in 1993, uh, he read Jerry Adams and became convinced that Sinn Féin could be persuaded to give up the gun and join the parliamentary route. And he took a huge risk in that, as indeed did John Hume at the time in the Hume Adams talks, uh, in uh, trying to bring them in from the cold. And, uh, you know, it, it paid off. Mm. But it was, uh, it was very risky for Atlantic philanthropists who were very worried about where it was all going. But in this low-key way, he did it very secretly and uh, without, without much, you know, profile. And it was enabled to be, as in many of his charity work and philanthropy work, more effective. Mm, I think he actually did fund a Sinn Féin office in Washington but also it's important to say he funded lots of reconciliation projects uh, in both parts parts of Ireland but no doubt he was pivotal in persuading the likes of Bill Clinton to to get involved and to embrace Sinn Féin and to, to bring them into that process. Now you mentioned um, the other uh, great interest of his life really here in Ireland was the university sector. Um, he gave quite a lot there. I remember myself uh, one of the universities where he contributed a lot of money being absolutely adamant that there was no naming no credit nothing like that but in a more general sense he was he was quite prolific in the amount of money he gave to universities right across Ireland wasn't he? Yes he was extraordinary in fact all the universities got together a very unusual way to give him a, a joint honorary degree uh, north and south because he was a big believer in innovation and education and research and, um, you know, Conor O'Cleary in his wonderful biography of, of Chuck Feeney, you know, the billionaire who wasn't, talks about how he lobbied um, the government at the time, Michal Martin, who was in education, and, uh, and, and, and Bertie Ahern, who was the Taoiseach. And he said, if, I'll put up 50 million if you match it. And it was humming and hawing. He finally said to Bertie, I won't put it up if you don't match it. And, uh, you know, the government found the money. And it was the beginning of serious uh, investment in Irish scientific research, um, which uh, was, you know, is badly needed uh, for the future. So he believed in investing. He believed in getting co-investors, matching funds, and just stimulating something that was important uh, for society. And he did the same thing in higher education at the universities. With Ed Walsh um, at uh, Limerick University, he basically built it up from uh, you know, a few hundred students to the fantastic institution is today. Uh, I did the same with DCU, um, another innovative university, and um, and of course helped all the other universities, North and South. Mm. So he he was a visionary, true visionary. And the other great thing about Chuck was he hired good people. Um, John Healy was the first CEO and president 
of Atlantic philanthropies. I knew him at Trinity. He was always bright, innovative. And uh, he he got, got Atlantic philanthropies as a structure organization. And so between that structure of Atlantic philanthropies and, and Chuck's innovation and constant openness to new ideas, mm. it became the most effective philanthropy in the world. And just how he lived his life then, Ted, I mean, he wasn't the quintessential billionaire that we see bouncing around now. He had a quite a frugal existence himself, would you say? Well, yes, he, he didn't he didn't own any property, uh, uh, you know, at the end of his life. And he, um, you know, he always uh, he went around and coach. Uh, his line on coach was a very good one, which people should use. He said, you don't get any sooner in to, to your destination in first, in first class. So he had, you know, an old Mac coat, coat and he carried his papers in a plastic bag. And it was, it was the way he was. Uh, he was, he was very, very disarming. And um, I asked Neil O'Dowd recently, who knew him very well from the 80s, and uh, Neil, you know, founder of the Irish Voice, Irish Central, here in New York. And I said, you know, what was, what was the most thing that stood out about Chuck Feeney? And he said he never changed who he was. He was always this working-class guy from New Jersey, and he coached people the same whether $10 in their pocket or $10 million in their pocket. And uh, he, he, he was just um, really, you know, really interesting, um, thoughtful person. Well, he will be very sadly missed and well-remembered. But, Ted, thank you very much for taking the time to share that story with us today. That was Ted Smith, who's chair of the Clinton Institute for American Studies at UCD and a former Irish diplomat. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. After the break, as hostilities intensify in Gaza, we go right back to the origins of the conflict to find out where it all started. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, finally today, as hostilities in Israel and Gaza intensify, we want to examine the origin of those hostilities and maybe look at the geopolitical interests of everyone that's involved in this escalating crisis, just to try and give us all, uh, I suppose, a greater understanding of how it all started. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Alison Meekham. She is Associate Editor at Foreign Policy. Alison, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Alison, do you get what I what I mean? Uh, lots of people are involved in the day to day watching of news, but I, I I think it's important when we 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 hear the American government saying something, we see European leaders talking about it. Try and understanding how this all started is quite difficult in the news kind of cycle. So we could we could go back and and start at the Ottoman Empire, but but maybe let's start with the creation of the Israeli state and Gaza and Palestine and how they actually came about uh, after World War One. Can you just take us through um, the 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 concept and, and how the the construction came about? For sure, and and I should say up front exactly what you're what you're indicating about U.S. and European leaders making broad statements. They are not very good at explaining the historical context. So, I'll do my best to to correct that. Um, yeah. So, starting after World War One, uh, the Ottoman Empire slowly crumbled after World War One, and the British established established a uh, a mandate in in a region of the Ottoman Empire known as Palestine, and that became the British mandate for Palestine. Um, in that period, in the late starting in the late eighteen hundreds and in the early nineteen hundreds, um, 
there was an increase in Jewish migration to Palestine, uh, mostly from Europe and mostly in response to rising anti-Semitism and a growing Jewish national movement called Zionism. Um, this intensified and accelerated as, as um, the Nazis took over in Europe and, of course, in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And with that, um, there was a rise in tension and clashes between um, indigenous Palestinian residents and, and Jewish newcomers. Um, the UN and the British proposed dividing the territory, the mandate for Palestine, into a Jewish state and an Arab state. Um, and the UN at this point was a brand new body, and it was one of its first actions taken to vote on this. Um, Jewish groups were in favor of this, and most Arab groups in Arab countries were opposed to it, um, arguing essentially that Arabs would be getting less land despite the fact that their population was was much larger than the Jewish population. Mm. This was passed and, and, and there were increasing tensions um, between Zionist militias, which had become established in the in the mandate for Palestine and Palestinians. And um, that culminated once Britain withdrew um, in, in the first Arab-Israeli war that led to the establishment of Israel, but also in the process to the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinians in, in what is called the Nakba. Mm. Um, and a number of neighboring Arab countries uh, invaded, most notably Egypt, which um, took the Gaza Strip, and Jordan, which took East Jerusalem and the West Bank. So um, that is how those those two geopolitical entities were created. Yeah, let's just go back to World War One for a second and that Balfour Declaration. Actually, lots of Irish yes. listener, uh, lo- lots of Irish listeners will be familiar with Balfour. There was a Balfour Act here, similarly uh, about land rights uh, in Ireland. But um, th- that Balfour Declaration and the establishment of Palestine or a national home for for Jewish people, Israelis then felt that that was a right for them to exist and acknowledgement of that. Palestinians then maybe saw it as an early sign of dispossession. But if we look back to yes. that time and who lived there at that time, what actually transpired for those people and how are those territories reflected today? Yeah, so um, at the time that the Balfour Declaration was was passed in the UK in 1917, there was no, there were no Israeli people mm. yet. Um, it, the Israeli people, I suppose that that nation was created in 1948. So it um, essentially sought to establish a Jewish homeland in the British Mandate for Palestine. Um, at the period in the British Mandate for Palestine, the majority population was Muslim, but there were sizable Christian and Jewish minorities that um, generally coexisted peacefully. What it, what the Balfour Declaration really meant for for Palestinians, which refers to those Muslim, Christian, and Jewish inhabitants um, in Palestine at the time, was that there was an increase in migration from Europe um, at much higher levels than before the Balfour Declaration. Mm. And then now, um, who inhabits the area now? And how, like, how does that compare to what it was then? Essentially, um, I mentioned that, that Egypt took the Gaza Strip and um, Jordan, which was then called Transjordan, took the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Many of the Palestinian refugees who fled um, during the Nakba, during the founding of Israel, um, fled to those territories and also to neighboring countries like Lebanon and, and Syria, for example, um, also into the Gulf. Today, um, you know, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are, are Palestinian, majority Palestinian um, territories. I should say in 1967, Israel recaptured those territories, so they are no longer controlled by 
by Egypt and Jordan um, within Israel proper. That is to say within the 1949 armistice lines, the um, population is about 20% Palestinian um, or Arab Israeli as, as the population is often referred to um, with, and then 80% are, are um, Israeli Jews um, and other minorities like, like the Druze people. Um, And there's been of course a large increase in, in Israel uh, in migration since since the state was founded. Yeah, now let's just widen this out a little bit because one of the other things that people often ask is is about the geopolitical importance of this conflict itself and and where does the, or where do the relationships stem from? So let's just take the US to mm-hmm. start with and, and sure. w- we've both been talking off air about um, the US president this week kind of being cautious uh, in his approach but that relationship between the US and Israel is very strong. Why is that? Yeah, I think the U.S. Um, sees Israel as sort of an outpost of its politics in the Middle East and, and sort of a strategic partner in, in fighting uh, threats such as Iran. Both the U.S. and Israel view Iran as a, a large threat um, security-wise, and so they cooperate in this regard. I think um, the U.S. has often referred to Israel as the only democracy in the Middle mm. East, which I think human rights groups would would disagree with and might argue that Israel is not uh, a true democracy given how it treats Palestinians. Um, but this is sort of the line that the United States always goes back to. But I think the core interest is security, geopolitical security. We can think back to historical events like events like the Suez crisis, for example, and, and how instrumental you know that was to, to the flow of trade. We can think back to the uh, 1973 OAPEC oil embargo. The U.S. sees Israel as a strategic partner in the region, but I think I think some of it also comes down to to cultural affinities. Is it an important question in U.S. politics now? So, say when the elections happening next year, will this be part of the discussion? It's really hard to say. Um, typically, foreign policy is never a decisive issue in U.S. elections, but um, Israel and discourse surrounding Israel might be an exception to that. Personally, I I think the election will mostly be focused on domestic issues and also the return of um, former President Donald Trump. We're over a year out, so we'll really have to see. And I think the the situation in Israel-Palestine will have also changed dramatically. But it is true to say that in U.S. politics, declaring support for for Israel has typically been a a reliable talking point Mm. and and one that that leaders feel they have to check off. I think I'm right uh, that Donald Trump, when he was president, moved the embassy, the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv Mm -hmm. to to Jerusalem. So, yeah. Yeah. um, So, so sorry, you mentioned there, Alison, there's so much to get through. You mentioned there Iran um, and that's uh, an important part of this question. Even the recent attack last week, um, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't feel that actually Hamas were capable of doing this. And given the lack of intelligent, intelligence that, that Mossad had, that this is mm-hmm. an Iranian attack by, for all intents and purposes. So maybe can you just give us a, a flavour, sorry, an idea of their interests in the region and their relationship with, with Israel? Yeah, so... Israel and, and Iran do not have a relationship, I think, is, is the short answer to that question, and that they view each other as, as mortal enemies, essentially, um, and have since the, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, 
Iran is, is known to fund militant groups throughout the Middle East, most notably Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas um, in Gaza and the Palestinian territories. Um, you're correct in saying that there's been a lot of commentary speculating as to the Iranian role um, in the uh, Hamas attack on Israel. Um, although as far as I know, and there were um, new U.S. intelligence reports that suggest Iran actually was blindsided by this. Mm. Um, of course, we can't be certain, but there is no evidence yet to suggest that um, Iran played a role besides their their ongoing funding of, of Hamas. Mm. But overall, Iran's goal is to destabilize Israel. You, you, you mentioned Hamas there a couple of times. Um, just to talk us through when they were set up and when they came to power and um, w- w- like how, how successful they have been, I suppose, in, in, in the last couple of decades in particular. Sure. So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict dates essentially back to, to 1948. And Hamas was founded much more recently mm. in 1987, um, as sort of a wave of um, growing political Islam across the Middle East. Um, and they're sort of related to the Muslim Brotherhood that we'll see in other countries. Um, Hamas, you know, has its origins largely in Palestinians' frustration with their establishment at the time, in the establishment in 87 when Hamas was founded. Um, for a long time, Palestinian resistance was led by the Palestine Liberation Organization and leaders like Yasser Arafat, um, and the largest political party within the PLO um, was and is Fatah, which controls the West Bank. And Fatah, over time, um, came to accept Israel um, and give up the armed struggle and pursue negotiations instead. Now, um, the reason, as we know from from you know talking during yet another war, those negotiations have not been fruitful, mm. and Hamas's support has grown as Fatah has has sort of proved incapable of um, lending Palestinians political rights or liberation or an independent state, depending on on what the key demands are. Um, And so frustration with that establishment um, and basically their inability to move the needle has has led Hamas's rise. Hamas um, is a political party. Um, They, unlike Fatah, they reject Israel. a few years ago, they published a charter that said they would accept a Palestinian state um, in the territories of the West Bank and, and Gaza, but they did not say that they would recognize Israel along those lines. So their their whole MO is, is to fight Israel. Now, a key date was in 2006, which was the last time that um, legislative elections were held in the Palestinian territories. So that is to say um, in the West Bank and in Gaza. In those elections, Hamas won a plurality of seats. Mm. And this was a real shock both to Fatah and the PLO and and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, who is a member of Fatah. And what ensued was a um, a Palestinian civil war. And Hamas ended up taking the Gaza Strip while Fatah retained control in the West Bank. Hamas gained control of Gaza in 2007. And since then, the the territory has been suffocated by an Israeli uh, air, land and sea blockade, which was a direct response to Hamas's takeover. And that actually brings us to the conditions within the Strip itself and the conditions that people are living in even before this um, conflict started again now. Um, I, I read somewhere somebody described it as the biggest open air prison in the world. Maybe just give us a sense of how populated it is, uh, how many people are there and what the living conditions are actually like. 
Sure. Um, so yeah, the open air prison characterization is one you'll hear a lot and, um, it, it rings true when you hear the humanitarian conditions in the Gaza Strip. So Gaza has a population of about 2.3 million, but it's a very small territory. It's only twice the size of the city of Washington, D.C., where I'm, where I'm sitting right now. Um, so it is considered one of the most densely populated places on earth. Um, since the Israeli blockade um, started in 2007, and it has been ongoing since then with Egyptian support, um, as, Egypt, as Egypt shares a, a boundary with Gaza, um, the economy has been decimated. Um, poverty is, is sky high, as is hunger. I believe 90% of Gazans do not have um, clean water to drink. Um, it is just an ongoing humanitarian disaster, um, hence, hence this characterization of an open-air prison. And to add to that, um, Israel, because it, it, of this blockade, controls everything and, and everyone that can go in and out of the territory. So that includes aid, that includes medicine, and um, and as we're seeing now, that includes food and fuel and water as well. Israel also controls the electricity supply. So, you know, there have been cases where, where people have been unable to have died because they've been unable to get the medical care they need, or they've been unable to get an Israeli permit to leave the territory and, and secure medical care. So, um, it is really, really, uh, the de- conditions are deplorable. And that was even before Israel this week announced a total siege on the territory. Oh, yeah. Well, a very stark picture there, Alison, and an impossible situation for those poor people. Um, but I do think it's really important when, you know, it's so hard to predict what's going to happen next that we try at least and understand how these things came about and who is saying what and why. So, Alison, I have to say you've given us a, a great explanation of some very difficult and complicated questions. And I really thank you for your insights and your time. That was Alison Meekham, who's Associate Editor at Foreign Policy. Alison, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks, as always, to today's guests for giving us their very valuable time and insights. I'd like to also thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. Any comments on today's programme, you can get in touch with us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Up next, it's Jonathan McRae with Future Proof and then it's Emmett Oliver with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.